So we are at part three of our pollinator series. Do, do, do. So we had part one was the plants, pollinator plants. Part two was the pollinators, so the little creatures that help uh, pollinate the plants. And today we are going to talk uh, primarily about pollinator habitat. And in order to do that, we have ourselves another special guest today, Alana. We actually met her very recently. Uh, helping her kick off her grand opening for her new store. So I will let Alana introduce herself and her business and uh, her background a little bit as to uh, how can how she can make she can make us sound a little more intelligent on her show. <laughs> yeah, okay. Thanks, John. Um, so my name is Alana Tallinar, and I am the owner, one of the owners of Backyard Birds Nature Shop. We're a brand new store in Spruce Grove, Alberta, um, and we are all about everything to do with uh, the wildlife, specifically birds in your backyard, um, but not just the birds. We like all of the creatures in your backyard. Um, so we sell bird feeders, we sell bird feed, um, bird houses. Uh, bird baths, all of that good stuff. So um, that's a little bit about what I'm doing now. In the past, I well, I just finished recently my undergraduate degree in environmental and conservation science. So this is right up my alley. I really love all things pollinators, um, wildlife, conservation, all of that good stuff. So um, I am formally educated in the field and um, I also worked for a conservation organization for three summers as well, so um, a land conservation organization. So I am familiar, very familiar with pollinator habitats and the importance of protecting land. So Nice. And of course, we also have Dan and Kevin, as always, to join us as well today, and myself. Um, so I think what we will do is start, um, there's, there's three main points I think we want to tackle in regards to pollinator habitat. And the first one is habitat loss. So uh, there is a lot of habitat loss that's been going on for quite some time as a result of, of different things, uh, agriculture, uh, development, like urban planning, that kind of thing, and also fragmentation of habitat. Um, so I guess we'll start with the agriculture part. Um, whatever you guys can offer as to what you know about um, the effects agriculture can have on pollinators. Maybe we'll start with uh, Dan. That's me. Yes, it uh, is. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Like, I mean, first thing that kind of comes to mind is, uh, I mean, pesticide, like chemical use and how that excess uh, chemicals can affect um, how, yeah, pollinators are functioning in an area, or just really even just having, you know, pesticides killing off uh, plants that pollinators would use for habitat um, and stuff like that. And another thing, I think a big one too, is the just, you know, clearing a whole swath of land for, you know, whatever crop uh, a farmer's trying to uh, seed and in that process getting rid of a whole bunch of uh, uh, native plants or habitat. Um, cause yeah, maybe, you know, there's a certain pollinator that likes to, likes a understory of like a shrub or something like, and now it's filled with corn. <laughs> <laughs> we always use the corn as example. We're not picking on corn growers. It's just 
a common. Oh, I mean, I love corn. Yeah. 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 (laughs) No slander against corn farmers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, um, Uh, but yeah, those kind of things. So yeah, just, yeah. Yeah. Okay. How about, um, Alana, is there anything you can add to that as things that you see with agriculture, um, affecting our, our pollinators and our, and their habitat lost? Yeah, um, I actually like to look at farmers as partners in supporting pollinators because I think that they can play a big role um, in in partnering with with community organizations and conservation organizations to support um, pollinator populations. So actually, the uh, conservation organization that I worked for was called the Edmonton and Area Land Trust, and they're absolutely wonderful. I definitely recommend looking into their resources. And the one thing that came to mind when we started talking about pollinators and agriculture was a um, a fact sheet that was put together a couple of years ago by the staff of that organization, all about um, how pollinators um, are, affect, are affected by and can affect um, agriculture. So um, I'm not sure if there's a way that we can uh, share the the fact sheet with listeners, but I would love to um, to pass that along. I can try and summarize it a little bit here. Uh, basically, it it talks about how um, pollination is vital to agriculture and how um, doing things like planting native plants around um, the, the the crop, like having it in you know maybe the the farmer's yard, for example, alongside the crop is in fact very, very beneficial for um, their crop. So it's kind of not just, oh, we're doing this to help the pollinators. It also is beneficial for the farmers to invest in something like a native plant garden. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd love to be able to share this. Um, sure. This I, think, with- I think there's a way that, um, Kevin, you can probably get uh, a link or something and get it posted up on our on our sites or something, but we'll get that figured out for sure. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a great idea. And I'd love to see that. And actually, while I'm talking about Kevin, uh, is there anything that you have to add to the, the whole agricultural aspect of the habitat loss and, and how we can uh, kind of recoup that? Um, I cannot really speak to it because I am a city boy. I have always <laughs> been a city boy. I know nothing about agriculture. Oh, I know is that just the uh, um, the stuff I learned from school saying that um, well, it depends on what kind of agriculture they're doing, right? If it's those unsustainable agriculture like those ma- uh, mass farming, um, then obviously it's not good for the pollinators if they are not preserving the land for the habitat. But yeah, that's pretty much all I know. And like. Uh, before Don came here, like I was just talking that people are like me. Lots of people, I believe, they're like me. They're uneducated. Well, not uneducated, just like they don't know lots about the pollinator. And then I was just saying, I just killed a wasp, but it's actually a good thing. Like the wasp, they, they can be good at they pollination, right? Yeah. So, Everything yeah, can have so that's why I think that's why we're here doing this kind of stuff. And I'm learning with this podcast too to make a change. Mm hmm. For sure. Well, I think um, all of you brought up some really good points about um, there's good and bad to everything. And again, we're not here to shame or or judge the whole agricultural industry because I I look at it as there's an opportunity to be had here. Um, Yes, a lot of the large scale agriculture has has used pesticides, herbicides, that kind of thing in the past. Uh, Monoculture can be a big problem. However, 
there's like Alana was saying, there's a partnership to be had here where um, if they just have some guidance and, and help, um, they could be planting pollinator swaths in between their crops. Uh, they could be using alternate methods instead of the, the pesticides. Uh, there's, there's all kinds of things that could be happening. And once they're shown the value in it, that they're not just doing it because it's good for the environment, they're actually doing it for other reasons as well. Like this could actually add to your bottom dollar for your crops because now your crops are getting pollinated by these different creatures. Um, it could add to your, um, your soil makeup and improve your whole, your farming overall. Like there's so many, so many reasons to do it that um, hopefully more and more of small and larger farmers will get on board um, to help bring the habitats back and create more habitats for these pollinators. Um, development, of course, touches on this as well. So there's a lot of uh, commercial developments going on in urban scapes where habitat is, is unfortunately destroyed when they're putting up buildings and pavement and everything else. Um, we know we can't stop people from expanding and increasing our numbers and needing places to live, but we can definitely um, think about putting corridors and green spaces and people in their backyards planting these uh, native habitats and, and creating areas for these pollinators, right? Um, same thing with the fragmentation of habitat due to um, things like, you probably haven't even thought of this, but things like light pollution. Uh, we have moths and, and nighttime creatures that get really disoriented when all those streetlights are on at night and it's as bright as day, right? Um, mm -hmm. that, that can be a problem as well. But there's, uh, th there's always something to look at, I guess, and there's always going to be things we can improve. But uh, like we said before, I think the big thing is to make, make, make a step, make forward progress, make an attempt, um, because anything going forward is is beneficial um what are some other things that you guys can think of that um can lead to habitat loss or things that people might want to consider before they're doing something um that may affect habitat for pollinators anybody just feel free to jump in yeah like uh the, this is kind of an odd one that uh, i was kind of thinking about um kind of when this topic got brought up or when we thought about doing the series uh when it came to the uh, habitat was uh almost having too much native plants uh because if you have too much of a desirable plant species say for well i mean around here i mean like we get the uh, sometimes deer coming like because i live kind of by the river valley and sometimes we get coyotes and you know, deer coming Lots up. Lots of wildlife, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the and the thing, yeah, something that, yeah, I don't even really think about it often, but it kind of makes sense is that if you almost plant too much of a desirable native plant, say for like a shrubbery that like a white-tailed deer might like, um, but is also beneficial for uh, certain caterpillars uh, for their habitat for and for like reproduction, um, that can almost be uh, detrimental because you have all this, you, you know, you put all this shrubbery, like native plant, native plant shrubs uh, in a certain area, and then all this white-tailed deer come, and then it starts eating out uh, all the uh, shrubbery understory. 
mm-hmm. and that could lead to well, yeah, and then caterpillars don't have <laughs> kind of a staging ground for reproduction so there. Basically, so, like go too far the other way if you're if you're if you're doing too much of of certain things and you're attracting um, a few maybe a few select species that they become overpopulated themselves in this whole. So it's it, again, I think it's all about balance, right? So. Yeah, because. Um, yeah, it'd be counterintuitive for me to say, don't plant native plants. It's no, <laughs> what, I, what I'm trying to say. It's just, so yeah, good. don't it's go overboard. Just... And like, and again, with kind of the work that we're doing, it's, yeah, it's it's about having that expertise and knowledge and also just being able to plant and have, yeah, have that nice balance of uh, having enough native plants in an area that maybe didn't have as many uh, to kind of encourage pollinators and other species to kind of come in and kind of make that, you know, area lush and kind of function as kind of an ecosystem that you see in the wild, but also don't not going overboard and just having a big patch of kind of maybe a monoculture of like one species that, yeah, white-tailed deer or some other kind of uh, wildlife kind of comes in and starts. It's beneficial for that one species, but maybe kills off or is, you know, detrimental for five other species that you're trying to encourage to come in. Yeah. So the key is always biodiversity, right? Whether it's. Yeah. It's native Have a little bit of everything. Yeah, for sure. Like a salad. Um, <laughs> Alana, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, not on that point particularly. I, I could add something to the point about um, development. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the city of Edmonton's um, naturalization projects, mm-hmm. because I think that they're really... Uh, they have a lot of potential, and I think that it's a really great initiative that they've put forward. So I think um, um, I know that there's a lot of like neg- negativity of, around like oh, development can be um, can be negative. Of course, like new developments, greenfield developments can definitely be harmful to wildlife habitat. But I also think that urban planners play a huge role in. Um, improving pollinator habitat too, and things like the um, the naturalization project in the city of Edmonton, where they're actually working to convert um, things like uh, kind of like the um, the medians between roads; those are being converted to uh, more natural. Um, like they're planting native plants instead of you know just making it entirely pavement. Um, so they are doing. There's a lot of active work going on. Um, from the urban like city perspective um, that isn't all damaging so I think that that's really encouraging as well and that um, again it is a balance it's it's not all all bad and it's um, it's really cool to see that places like the city of Edmonton who you know is one of Canada's major cities is is taking the right steps toward protecting pollinators and um, actually make our city a, a like a healthier place to live so mm-hmm. yeah no it's for sure and uh, to be honest, I think um, if we can provide the information and help educate the developers, the builders, that kind of thing, they're the ones, they're at the forefront of being able to make the change, right? So um, if if they've got the right information, then when they're doing their designs and their builds and everything, they can incorporate the, the greener spaces and the uh, pollinator habitats and all these things into their designs rather than if they if they didn't know any better well how can you expect them to change right so i i do think everything goes hand in hand and it's a combination of uh, communication and education uh but there's definitely like alana says a lot of opportunity um 
to do great things when everybody's working together. Uh, one more point I wanted to bring up about the, the habitat loss is something that's partially naturally cyclical as well as um, aggravated by man's activity, and that is the climate change. That's another big factor in um, as the climate changes, it changes the, the landscape as to which plants can survive in certain areas, which then turns around and changes which pollinators, which species can survive in those areas as well. Um, and some of it is natural. There are always going to be ebbs and flows of things that come to the forefront, things that go extinct. But of course, man has also sped up that process with some of the things we've been doing as well. So things that we can do to mitigate that with, uh, you know, everybody's heard of the carbon sequestration and turning more of the, the pavement into green space and uh, doing more native planting, more biodiversity, all these different things can have a cumulative effect. I don't think it's any one particular thing, but just doing uh, a lot of different things can have that effect. So, um, all right, moving on to habitat conservation. Now, I think this is important because a lot of times people think they want to do something good. So if they create something, whether it's uh, a little space in their yard or whether it's uh, a commercial builder or somebody doing something for the community, a lot of it is building a new habitat. But there are lots of existing habitats out there that just need a hand to be uh, conserved so that they're here not only for us to enjoy, but also for all the, the wildlife and the plants and uh, everything that's, that's native that's out there so that they don't uh, become endangered or go extinct or have to move elsewhere. Um, so what are some things that you guys can think of that um, aid habitat conservation of, of existing lands that are out there? Yeah, like, I mean, one thing would be creating something like, uh, like bee hotels. Mm -hmm. I think that's a pretty kind of easy... I, I, I think it's pretty in the zeitgeist. Like, I think a lot of people are kind of know what bee hotels are, and I think that's a pretty easy thing to kind of install in a space and have so a ton of benefits for that. Sorry, go ahead. So I was going to say, so, th so things that you can add to the existing spaces to make them even more, I guess, more desirable to the, to the wildlife and to the, to the native species. Hey. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Like I kind of, yeah, see that as kind of a external man-made uh, thing being added. And then, yeah, something maybe more natural is, yeah, just, I mean, we've talked about a bunch of, times already in this episode already uh is yeah just kind of increasing your biodiversity and kind of encouraging the add more uh plants that are native to the area and attract those pollinators that are specific to that area versus kind of bringing all these ornamentals or things that maybe yeah pollinators aren't you know they don't get as much food or nectar pollen out of it like um mm -hmm. yeah so yeah those kind of things too i get you um alana any thoughts on um, things that we can do to help assist the habitat conservation? Yeah, I want to touch a little bit on bee hotels um, yes. again. Cause, well, because you guys care, you carry them at your store, do you not? Yeah, we're we're getting some in soon. I have one here, um, but I'm getting a bunch more in soon. So um, I think we do have to be a little bit careful about bee hotels because there are a lot of them that are made incorrectly um, or that aren't necessarily conducive for the native bees in Alberta. Um, so 
you know, for example, some of them, the whole size, the hole where the, the actual bee would go in and lay their eggs is too large. Mm-hmm. So they're not going to actually use that hotel. Or sometimes the tunnel is too short, so they wouldn't have enough room to lay their eggs. Um, so there's a lot of different design considerations um, to to think about when you're purchasing or building a bee hotel. Um, and I actually did a lot of work on bee hotels over the past probably three or four years now. Um, I've done workshops all across Edmonton to help um, help people build their own bee hotel um, that is designed to the standard to help our native bees. Um, and they, they don't always look the same as the ones that you can buy from, you know, big big stores like big box, box store stores types, yeah um so we do have to be careful about um you know what we're putting out there because not all of them are beneficial and um in fact some of them when they have different um different types of habitats in one hotel like for example when you see the ones that have pine cones in them that isn't always a good thing and it could actually attract pests to your bee hotel, which could then go and harm the native bees. So um, we do need to be really intentional about how we do that. There's two main resources I would suggest looking into if you're thinking about building or purchasing a bee hotel. And the first one is the organization I mentioned previously, the Edmonton and Area Land Trust. They've done so much work on bee hotels and it's very, very well done. Um, And the second one is the Alberta Native Bee Council and they have a wealth of knowledge about, um, about solitary bees and what would be needed to uh, make a suitable habitat for them. Yes. And actually we had Megan, um, she's the president of the Alberta Native Bee Council on our last episode talking about the pollinators. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, uh, some great resources there and good points because yes, mm-hmm. there's so many different species. Not all of them have the same requirements. Some of them are very specific requirements mm-hmm. for good reason. And mm-hmm. so just sticking something out there uh, as a bee hotel or a birdhouse mm-hmm. or any of these things, um may not be good enough or may be detrimental make sure you have the right specifications um there's lots of good online resources there's lots of good literature out there and there's lots of very knowledgeable people out there you just have to uh connect up and you can be well informed before you go into either building your own or purchasing something from somebody who knows like alana so yes good points there um, I was thinking about things on a, I guess, a more general scale, like for habitat conservation, things like if uh, you can set aside land that um, has been shown to have uh, existing pollinators and, and diverse wildlife or, or certain plants on it, um, setting aside those, those pieces of land as um, uh, protected areas or nature areas would be something. Um, of course, not everybody can do that, but you can also support organizations that identify and help preserve some of these habitat areas. Even volunteering, um, volunteer with some of these groups. Like I'm sure, uh, I'm not sure if the Edmonton uh, An Area Native Trust has a certain section for section for volunteers or not. But yeah, they have uh, a huge volunteer program. There you go. So there's organizations like that or the um, Edmonton um, Native Plant Society or the Native Bee Council, Alberta Native Bee Council. Like there's lots of these groups out there that are already doing these kind of things. And if you want to do something but have no idea where to start, consider volunteering with them because you can learn a lot as well as do some good, but do it in the right way. Also, 
utilize these areas as a member of the general public because if you're utilizing these nature areas um it shows the government that it's important to have um have grants and and things in place to keep maintain these these places um we need to show that they have value and we need to campaign to the governments for ongoing support so that these spaces will be maintained and be there for you know our generations to come but also for the pollinators and the other species um, we started to get into this um, topic already, but that's okay. Uh, habitat creation would be another big one. Uh, and this is where Alana can probably speak volumes because um, there's not just one pollinator species either. I noticed when we were, were there at the grand opening, lots of hummingbird feeders and things were going out. Um, so maybe Alana can go over some of the habitat items that would be required to encourage um, the bees, the hummingbirds, the, the different species that you're familiar with that would most likely be able to hang out in somebody's yard. Some, you know, not something really large, <laughs> but, but the, the pollinator species we're concentrating on. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so hummingbirds are definitely pollinators. Um, and we do carry a variety of hummingbird feeders in our store um, to help you attract those hummingbirds to your yard. Um, and I think another one is things like butterfly waterers and baths, mm -hmm. um, bee baths, things like that are all really good ways um, that you can encourage pollinators to visit your backyard. Um, and then I know it's it's been said already, but Honestly, adding in plants that are going to attract those species to your yard is like so, so helpful. I know that there's lots of people in both Edmonton and Spruce Grove that have been trying to attract the hummingbirds. And what ultimately brings them in is the combination of having a hummingbird feeder that is always clean and um, fresh, like the nectar um, is always being switched out um, every few days. Uh, but that in combination with having the native plants that um, the hummingbirds are looking for, um, or even like brightly colored plants that they that's what they're looking for is those pinks and purples, which you can get a lot of in native plants. Um, so those are some ways that you can definitely attract all sorts of uh, pollinators to your backyard. I think um, some kind of uh, lesser known things that you can do for pollinators uh, because pollinators really aren't just bees. They are wasps, they are flies, they're beetles. Um, they're all of these different crawling insects. They are all pollinators. Um, so there are a few things that are very low maintenance that you can do um, to uh, attract these. Attract, but also um, support these creatures in your backyard. So things like not clearing up um, or clearing out spring debris too early because um, the insects won't have time to um, properly develop it. Like that's their habitat for like the first stages of their life in the spring. Um, so try and leave some piles of debris sitting there, which I know it goes against our nature during spring cleaning time. Uh, but I, I really made a conscious effort this year to keep a few piles of leaves kind of where they are um, or, you know, a pile of sticks, just leave it for a little bit longer, uh, you know, the end of May, then you can start to clean some of those things up and it's much more likely that your insects will will survive and be much better off than if you were to take that away 
Um, leaving some open patches of dirt is also not a bad idea mm -hmm. for some of your ground nesting pollinators um, who need you know, open dirt instead of just grass um, to be able to dig down into to make their nests. And one other thing that is <laughs> um, not a fan favorite, but leaving some dandelions. I know everyone really dislikes dandelions, uh, but if you leave just a few out, that is one of the earliest food sources for pollinators. Um, I know that lots of people consider them a weed, but they are one of the earliest food sources that pollinators are able to um, to use. So that's one thing you can do. You don't have to keep the whole yard like that. I get it. They're not that pretty. Um, but just a few would be a really great way to support the bees and butterflies and all of those other insects. Awesome. Um, that actually touched on quite a few of the points I had here. Um, yeah, definitely talk about the, the biodiversity with the native plants uh, for bringing in a lot of different species, not just one in particular. Um, keeping the debris longer. Um, what I do as a grower, if if somebody's a clean freak and really has trouble keeping their yard messy, I just do things in stages because from a plant perspective, um, with our cold winters and as we just experienced, we can have spring snow or frost or whatever later into the spring and things are up and down. Um, a lot of the natural plant material, the stalks of the plants, the grasses, the leaves, all these kind of things, they can also act as a mulch to protect your uh, maybe more tender perennials or that kind of thing when they're coming up as well, if it's if we're still having some intermittent weather. So I just take off a little bit on my maybe my toughest plants to start with, and then just gradually work my way to the more tender things so that by the time June rolls around, fine. Then your yard's a little more cleaned up, your plants are growing, and you don't notice it so much. But in the meantime, you've always left some debris for, for these little insects and things that could use it. Um, so yeah, that's a great idea. And as far as the bare ground, that's something nobody seems to think about is not everything needs a nest box. Some things are ground nesters as well. So having, uh, whether it's a bit of sandy ground, some of them prefer uh, a little more gravelly ground or right into the uh, the dirt. Either way, having a, a few bare patches, some of our ground nesters like, um, uh, what am I thinking, digger bees and that kind of thing, um, they like to uh, nest in those kind of areas. So that gives something for them. And also for egg-laying sites. I mean, you want these pollinators to continue on the next life cycle as well, right? Nest boxes too don't necessarily just include uh, the bees, there's other areas that can encourage nesting as well, whether it's the butterfly houses, uh, maybe it's bird nest boxes for certain things. Now I realize most of the birds are not necessarily deemed pollinator species, but there are for the little tiny hummingbirds, sometimes you can get, um, I, I've seen those kits. And again, it's one of those things you got to be very particular and know the right stuff, but they do like very fine items for their little tiny nests and stuff. Sometimes you can supply a little bit of that to help them get going. Um, also, predator safe options. None of our critters really want to be totally exposed and go about their business knowing that they could be eaten at any time. So if you're attracting, uh, whether it's the butterflies, the bees, the birds, make sure you have areas where it's provided by shrubbery. So maybe it's some native shrubs or some grasses or maybe these uh, nesting boxes, whatever it is, but make sure you have certain areas where our little critters can feel safe 
at certain points so that they're uh, not feeling so exposed all the time. And of course, going along with the, um, the water, different creatures will have different water needs. Some of them prefer to drink from uh, like pebbles in a dish or something. Some of them maybe from uh, a wet spot on the ground so they can pick up the extra minerals and things that are deposited in the soil. Um, so again, be aware of the different pollinator species and what their needs are to be able to supply that. Um, do, 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 do. Another thing for your habitat creation is try to disturb the existing habitat um, if it's already in somewhat of a native state as little as possible because you probably already got some residents in there and you might not even notice them because some of them are quite small. So just be careful to try and plan out as best you can any new development that you're going to do in regards to um, creating more habitat. Um, now, Alana already mentioned uh, a couple of the groups, but people may not be aware that there is a lot of uh, financial assistance that can be found through grants and that kind of thing if you know where to look to help support these endeavors. There's uh, lots of uh, the counties, the cities, um, lots of these organizations are actually trying to encourage getting pollinator gardens out there or um, different areas to encourage wildlife, all that kind of thing. And they will actually pay for a portion of what you're doing. You just got to know where to look. Um, off the top of my head, some of the organizations that I know are the Land Stewardship Center. Um, they've actually taken over the Green Acreages program and work with Alice. So a lot of people who are living in a rural situation, they can get assistance with everything from the pollinator gardens to fencing to water bodies to like, you know, like just everything. We've also got, I think we mentioned our Alberta Native Plant Council and the um, possibly even the Edmonton Native Plant Society. Uh, we've got Tree Canada. They'll help with anything to do with the tree portion of things if you've got a larger space. We've got the Canadian Wildlife Federation, uh, Wild, Wildlife Habitat Canada. Um, we've got Alberta Ecotrust. And even some of our larger companies want to pay it forward and help out in the community. So we've also got uh, organizations like Fortis Alberta and TD Canada Trust. They have programs to help, um, whether it's through schools, community, uh, or what have you, that, that you can get some assistance to get your projects on the go if you're thinking, oh man, this is going to be expensive it doesn't have to be expensive and you can also tone it down and do things in little pieces so that maybe maybe you just start out with the uh the nest box or put in a few plants or you know whatever it might be there's no reason you can't do do these things in stages as well um i guess management would be our next key um so once you've got a a, a habitat either established or one that's been protected what now what do you do like how do you maintain that i guess kevin hasn't said anything for a while <laughs> yeah because i don't have much to say <laughs> <laughs> you've always got lots to say what are you talking about uh, um so like management i would say uh it's an easy in for like, you guys <laughs> yeah like with maintenance yeah like just basically. make sure like make sure like after like the initial established that there's like the proper management of the like the habitat and then 
I don't know. Maybe Dan can add something. <laughs> uh, yeah, like I mean, yeah, with the work that we do, like we're we're trying to focus on when we establish, you know, whatever native plants we're putting in a certain spot. That you know, if somebody's focus is with pollinators, the idea is once you got that established, um, yeah, how do you maintain that? And kind of with our knowledge and expertise, our ideas. And again, the the thing with native plants is the idea is it it's kind of hand you you want it to be hands off at a certain point, but um, where you don't really have to think about it, and it's going to kind of grow and do its own thing, do its own functions, and you get all the benefits out of it. But kind of in that in between phase between when you first put it in the ground to when it gets established enough that you don't have to think about um, kind of having to maintain it, kind of in in that in between phase is again where we kind of come in with kind of the work we're trying to do and with that again it's not really too much that you really have to do again i'm thinking more on an urban um urban residential you know throw in a pollinator little patch in a yard if we were to throw a whole bunch of plants in there uh native plants in there get them a, uh it, like as soon as we throw them right in the ground uh, maybe a few weeks later or like a few months later within that same growing season at some point. Really, it's just us kind of coming in there and maybe trying to pick out some of the undesirable species. And there's a little tricky kind of balancing act again with, well, yeah, the homeowner might not like these, you know, plants that we consider weeds, but there's a lot of benefits with them. I when Atlanta was talking about you know, dandelions, dandelions, for example. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's beneficial to have some, you know, uh, weedy species like dandelions in there because they still provide uh, a lot of benefits for uh, pollinators. So kind of, but I know a lot of homeowners <laughs> might not uh, like that idea of, you know, keeping dandelions or other, some other weedy species that aren't super aggressive uh, but and still provide uh, some benefits. But yeah, for us, it's kind of, trying to find that balancing act of when you're trying to maintain it it's you know watering it make sure that it's surviving if there's enough nutrients in the ground usually if we're planting these kind of things the idea is you know you don't really don't really need to fertilize often if ever because again these plants are native so they should kind of survive in the spot that we're kind of making for them so those things aren't really an issue and it's just more kind of letting these things grow on their own and then if your focus is more on the pollinator side of it um, maybe kind of a maintenance task that you can do is um, not totally getting rid of a weedy species, but rather, um, yeah, like get, get them to a point where, you know, pollinators can still use them, but, you know, just before a dandelion is going to go to seed, then that's maybe where you kind of cut the heads off, collect it uh, and kind of throw it away. So it doesn't keep prop Like, I mean, it's still going to propagate, but, just to, you, just you to mitigate how much it's going to, yeah, how much it's going to actually spread around in a certain area. Like, those are kind of little things. Yeah, like me personally, I say just let it go crazy <laughs> to a certain point um, and kind of keep some of those kind of weedy species if it's not, you know, if it's not a prohibited noxious or noxious weed under, you know, whatever area you're living in. Because uh, those ones, you, you have to get rid of them regardless. But um, yeah, like it's, yeah. I would think it's yeah. Basically, it's it, a, it was a lot of rambling. I don't know if I just <laughs> answered the question. No, I think I think I understand what you're saying. So basically, my thought is, um, first of all, it is a wives' tale. Some people think, oh well, if I go do natives, 
then that's it. I can put up my feet and have a drink and, and it's all done. Every plant, if it's a plant, there's going to be some maintenance, but the point is with natives, it's far less maintenance. And if you do it right early on, there's less maintenance later. So initially when you're planting, um, yeah, you are going to have to possibly provide a bit of watering from time to time until they get established. You might need to do some weeding um, selectively slow, so, so that like Dan was saying, you don't have the noxious weeds or uh, other ones getting out of control. But over time, the point is that that maintenance decreases. So with natives, over time, it becomes a self-sustaining uh, ecosystem versus a lot of times if you're, you know, bringing in greenhouse or imported plants, um, they need a lot of work most of the time because they're, they're not from here. They're not geared for these situations and environments. Um, but that's one aspect of it. Another part of the management is once you've got your, your pollinator habitat established, make sure you're observing and reviewing it on a regular basis. Because again, like we've said, even the experts, you're not going to get 100% right the first time. I mean, mother nature is always a work in progress. So if, if you're starting to notice, oh man, I did all this stuff and I'm still struggling trying to get these pollinators or they're not sticking around, they're coming through and they're leaving. Or maybe you're going, wow, this is working so well. I have these species, but now I don't have those species. Or maybe you have certain plants that are doing well in certain areas of your yard and other ones are not, or they're doing better in another part. These are all just clues for you to, to tweak your plan. And there's nothing to say that after a year or two or three or 10 years, you can't go back and say, okay, now I'm going to add these things in, or I'm going to take this out because it wasn't working, or I'm going to adjust this, or maybe I'm going to move this around. Um, you can do that because the whole point is to keep developing your pollinator habitat so it just becomes better and better and better as time goes by. Basically, by observing, you're determining if you're, the steps that you've been taking are having an impact and if changes need to be made and what your, your plans for the future should be, right? So uh, I don't know Can if anybody Can I just pop in and add something to Yeah, I was just going to say if you had something to add. Yeah, um, I just wanted to talk about how um, with regards to that, like monitoring and follow up, you can also be an active part um, of citizen science and actually oh, yes. help the um, scientific community advance their understanding of the distributions of different insects and species, for example. Um even hummingbirds or, you know, larger pollinators as well, you can mm -hmm. um, actively play a role in citizen science. So using things like iNaturalist, which is an app that you can download on your phone um, and keep track of the sightings you've seen of different wildlife species. There's another one that's specific to Alberta um, called Nature Links, um, links as in the cat. <laughs> um, and that one is also an app for your phone. I think they have a website as well, though. Um, and that goes directly to the Alberta Biodiversity Monitoring Institute. So things that you're doing in your very own backyard are actually helpful for, um, for biologists and um, environmental scientists and all of these different researchers who are trying to keep track of, um, you know, what's working, what's not working. Um, so yeah, they, I think there's that, that role to be played as well. Um, and something like if you put up a bee hotel, um, there's different groups that will monitor to see if your bee hotel is successful. So the land trust that I've been talking about, they have a, 
um, a reporting sheet that you can fill out. Same with the Alberta Native Bee Council, you can um, report your findings to them. So there's lots of ways that like following up and seeing what's going on can really be beneficial um, for the entire, um, well, really society as a whole, but um, the body of science. So. Mm-hmm, for sure. Oh, yeah. And I mean, uh, there's different organizations, they, they have things like bird counts or um, I know the Native Bee Council was talking about um, they they want to document sightings of there's two uh, quite rare bumblebee species. So if you see one, you know, they want to know about it. And again, it just helps connect uh, all these little habitats. It might be your own backyard or or some other smaller area, but it starts connecting them together in a bigger uh, picture so that the pieces of the puzzle start to fit. And now they get a, a, a bigger idea of the grand scheme of okay, overall, now we have, we, we see we've got more of these pollinators in this area, or we're lacking, or we've lost this corridor, or what, you know, what's going on here. So definitely. Um, and because we're, a lot of times we're dealing with such small things like the insects, um, the, the scientists, there's, there's not enough of them, they can't get out there and look at every little inch of, of the, the, the land that's out there to, to see everything. So the more eyes that are out there, the better. So for sure. Um, and it also helps you connect to what you've created, I think, um, by cr- building your habitat or helping preserve an existing habitat. And then by observing it and documenting it and sharing it, um, you're getting more gratification out of it for yourself, I think, as well as um, educating and sharing with others is a big way of how we we keep promoting this and you don't have to be a scientist to do so. Just make sure you're getting your information from valid sources and then pay it forward by sharing it with your, your friends, your family, with other people that you come across. Um, Because I don't think there's such a thing as having too many people involved in trying to improve and better the environment, right? Or preserve the environment. Mm -hmm. And actually that I guess that goes along to my my last point, which was to get educated and then share the education. Um, my other point to that is it even could be something as simple as putting little signs up, plant labels, just things to let people know. Maybe you've got neighbors that if you start talking to them about the pollinators and the plant, they're like, whatever, I, I'm I'm not really interested, or it doesn't affect me, or whatever it is. But if you have a little sign in your yard and people come by and read that they they see that every day um and eventually it starts to sink in and they you know it might not be right away but down the road they might go huh i'm gonna look look this up because i keep seeing this and what's this about or it, it instills curiosity and starts to get people to want to know more right um so there's very, very large things that people can do, but there's also very small things that can still be very beneficial that people can do. Yeah, because, uh, yeah, going on that a little bit, um, I just noticed, like, I even have one of them. It's like, you know, those Defend Alberta Parks mm-hmm. signs. Like, I think they're pretty uh, uh, popular now. And, like, I think a lot of people, yeah, are starting to <laughs> get on the train uh, to get those like I just see them so much in my neighborhood now, and I'm just thinking too what on kind of related to uh, native plants and pollinators is that you know I have a whole bunch of native plants that I put in and I keep changing out um, 
in my front yard and there's so many people that kind of come by and look like I noticed, like they come by, they look and kind of, um, kind of walk by, but, uh, I kind of see these same people coming and going and, and actually I've had a few people stop by and after <laughs> coming by four or five times, actually, you know, stop and say, Oh, that's really cool. What are those species that are put in there? Or they already know that, like, oh, are, are those supposed to be native, or are those native plants? And, you know, ask me, like, why did I put them in there? And then I kind of give them the spiel of, you know, why native plants are important. Um, but, yeah, having those kind of signs that um, really do help to kind of give people that idea of, you know, this is why these, why we're doing these kind of things to promote sustain, you know, sustainable ideas. And, and I think so many people are really wanting to encourage more pollinators to be uh, kind of in urban areas, having those kind of signs help too to yeah educate them and just kind of get them thinking too, versus just kind of walking by, seeing maybe a patch of native plants and then moving on. And you know, some people might come back and strike up a conversation, but you know, other times it's trying to point them in the right direction because I think some people just get a little um, overwhelmed when it mm -hmm. comes to kind of where, where they need to go and all this information that's coming at them at once. It's kind of uh, these little signs might be a, kind of a little stepping stone. Uh, yeah, it could be an towards, icebreaker or a stepping stone. Yeah, yeah um, something easy. And I, what's that other thing that they have? Um, Yards and Bloom, I think, is the, something mm -hmm. that they have going on in the city that, I mean, again, that's all these different kinds of yards. But uh, that's another thing where if we can see even more, and I don't know if this is actually happening, but even being able to see more native plant garden yard type things being kind of in contention for those kind of awards would be kind of cool too. But, and again, mm -hmm. I don't know how popular that is within those, but yeah, I'm again, sure I think I'm a, rambling it's, again. It's okay. It's a, it's a building process, but again, it's just that whole, just starting the motion, getting that idea in the people's heads. And sometimes it's, it's something that's, it's it's slower to percolate, but it will still come back around later. But just having that reminder, um, eventually most people do, like you say, at least they might go they might go by five times, ten times, but they do start to think about it. And then one day they either start to look up the information themselves, like, oh, what's this thing about the pollinator plants, or what's this native species uh, native species I saw, um, or even to the point where they start to look for the person that. Uh, put them in and then they want to find out more information, but it's, it's all good. Just getting people um, thinking more about it. Um, even from now, from 10 years ago, most people I talk to now, you say native plants and they know on some level what that means. You talk about pollinators. They know that they're important. Um, a lot of these things are becoming more mainstream versus 10 years ago, 15 years ago. People are looking at me like, what are you talking about? Are you crazy? You know, so I'm glad that it's it's coming around and all these different aspects are becoming more mainstream. Yeah, because even the like city of Edmonton, I'm just thinking the place that, you know, me and, me and you, Don, previously worked at at uh, Clark Ecoscience. Um, there was one yard project that was kind of in the news uh, here in Edmonton. I think it was like 2014. 2015, somewhere around there, um, you know, Clark Ecoscience was working on a yard uh, using native plants, and it looked super wild and stuff. And uh, that client got called, uh, like, 
have the weed inspectors come because somebody complained yeah, that, oh, this thing looks, wrong. you know, weedy and wild. And there's all these like noxious things, even though people didn't know that, you know, these were actually plants native to the area. And yeah, there was like kind of big news coverage around it. And then, you know, the client and Clark Ecoscience had to kind of explain to the city and kind of all these other uh, uh, kind of industry people that, no, these are actually native. And this is why we kind of threw these in here in this kind of way. And um the benefits of using native plants and mm-hmm. uh, encouraging pollinators and other things to kind of come in. And now it's, yeah, at this point that where the city of Edmonton is now encouraging, you know, these naturalization projects for medians and pathways and green spaces and all these things. And yeah, I think it's just that change now that it's, yeah, it's becoming more, uh, more, more known in, yeah. to the public and, of and public, these kind the of things that becoming- you can do. Yeah, I think the public's becoming more educated and it's also becoming uh, more prevalent in the media and the government. And um, to be honest, I think it's becoming a little bit trendy and there's nothing wrong with that. If we can use that to our advantage, great, right? Um, So I just want to finish with uh, any final thoughts from anybody and also Alana, if you can please, please, please give us um, ways to contact yourself your business um any resources that may be a benefit um in regards to people that are going oh my god i i know i want to do something for pollinators but i just i don't know where to begin you know yeah yeah of course yeah so um if you ever want to get in touch with myself um there's a couple ways you can do that um, lots of people like to call or text. Um, if you would like to call me, give me a call at 780-948-8597. Um, if you'd like to text me, that's cool too, 587-783-2775. If you want to email me, you'll want to send an email to backyardbirdsnatureshop at gmail.com. Um, how else can we get a hold of each other? I, th- I don't um, think people should have an excuse that they can't get a hold of you. There should right? be a way, right? <laughs> it's quite easy to get a hold of me. Because you're on Facebook, you've got Facebook. a website. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Find me on Facebook. You can find my personal account, Alana Tolinar, or you can find my business account, Garrett Birds Nature Shop. I'm happy to answer either of those. Um, and the resources I was talking about with the Land Trust, go check out www.ealt.ca. They have a whole section on protecting pollinators, which is perfect for this um, conversation. So go take a look at that as well. Uh, But yes, if you ever, ever want to get in touch about any of this stuff, I'm happy to text, call, email, even even send me snail mail. That's fine. I like getting mail in the mail. That's great. Uh, Yeah. You know what? Other than bills, I don't know the last piece of cool (laughs) mail I've ever gotten. I would love to get like maybe our listeners just for the heck of it. Could you send us a card? Or, or a letter or something that's handwritten and not even typed. Like, that would be so awesome. That, that, you know, I haven't seen handwriting other than my sloppy chicken scratch stuff forever. That'd be great. Um, but yeah, there's, there's lots of ways to get a hold of uh, Alana Tolinar. And actually, that's spelled A-L-A-N-A-T-O-L-L-E-N-A-A-R, in case you're trying to figure out how to spell her name to look her up. Um, yes. <laughs> and again, as far as, uh, we, of course, Kevin Y and Dan can be found at, uh, fescue.ca and you can look me up at mmgardens.ca. And of course we're on Facebook as well. Um, and as always, please 
like, subscribe, download, share. Um, we'll try and get some links up, some more pictures. And please, all of you out there, uh, please share pictures. And uh, like I said, some good snail mail with some genuine handwriting would be great. We will see you next time.